Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at SFBC. This week, Pastor Rod Happel shares some closing thoughts on our We Serve Sermon series, and Fellowship Pacific's Regional Director, David Harita, shares a Fellowship Sunday message. Enjoy! So if you've been with us for the last two Sundays, you know that we've been into a small sermon series called We Serve. And um, we were looking the first week when I preached on the body of Christ and how we serve together. And then last week, Pastor Tim looked at how we take that servant heart of Christ and bring it into our everyday lives. So into our homes, onto our streets, where we work and play and go to school, uh, taking that heart of Christ, that same mentality of serving into our everyday lives. Today, we're looking at taking two ideas and merging them together. Uh, Each year, we have a Fellowship Sunday where we look at what's going on throughout British Columbia or across Canada in our fellowship. That's our denomination of churches. But also in our We Serve series, we wanted to look at partnerships and how we partner together to do the will of God. That it isn't all just our doing, but we can financially partner with other groups that are doing good things. And so today, in the in-person service, we're hearing from Karina, who's we partner with to do that work on the streets of Bolivia. And Krista Pinner from our regional office is here to share about what God is doing in church planting works throughout British Columbia and other initiatives they have going on. And we partner with them. And finally, we're going to talk about a church plant in Quebec that this church family started to support this last year. And it's a neat one because we partner with five other churches here in the valley where we all just took a chunk, like about $2,000 a year. We pooled our money so it makes a larger sum and we can help a church plant in Quebec. So together, we partner and God uses that. And that too is a part of our spirit of how we serve. But in lieu of the fact that or in light of the fact that we couldn't have Krista here or Karina to pre-record their pieces that they share in person, and we don't live stream, what we have for you is a sermon that David Harita, our regional director, put together um, back in March or April. This was a, a message he sent out to the churches that we might use on a given Sunday that we would call our Fellowship Sunday. So for those of you viewing online, you're going to see a 24-minute message from our pastor, David Harita. And David's heart is really to continue to remind us and refocus us on Jesus Christ. And you will hear that in this message. You will hear his heart for what he wants us to be about. And and maybe we've lost our way a little bit during COVID and he's bringing us back to that place. So I hope that you find that to be both a challenging message and an inspiring message at the same time. So God bless you as you watch David Harita, our regional director. Good morning to all of you from all of us at Fellowship Pacific. My name is David Harita, and I am the regional director for our churches, a privilege that I have um, when it comes to serving you. I'm not exactly sure when you're watching this video, since each of our family of churches uses this Fellowship Sunday video in a different way. Regardless of when you're watching it, it's great to be here with you, even if it's on video. And whether on video or in person at our Impact Conference or at your church, I trust that we've learned to never take the opportunity to gather together for granted. It's great to be able to do it. Today, I want to get right into it. I want to talk about some of the strange ways that God works and some of the reasons why that might happen. I assume that most of you have wondered about this a time or two in the past due to your own life experiences, things that have happened that forced you to ask that question. But I'm also assuming that enduring a worldwide pandemic has brought that same question to the forefront 
of your mind yet again. And there's a pivotal passage in the Gospel of John that can probably help us with this. It's in John chapter 11. Some of you probably know that this particular Gospel has a structure to it where there are seven I am sayings of Jesus that follow seven miracles, where Jesus says an I am saying after he's done a miracle that demonstrates it, claiming identity with God from the Old Testament. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And John 11 is the fifth of these signs, and it's the lead up to the Passion Week with Jesus going to Jerusalem to be crucified and ultimately, triumphantly, resurrected. It's an awesome and a famous story, but it's hard to avoid the fact that Jesus had a strange way of supporting his friends. The story begins by telling us that two of Jesus' good friends, Mary and Martha, had a brother whose name was Lazarus, who was very sick, and he was in danger of dying. And the two sisters knew that Jesus cared about Lazarus. So when the seriousness of the situation became clear, Mary and Martha, the sisters, sent a message to Jesus asking him to come and help. They had every reason to expect a positive response, expecting Jesus to show up. When asked, Jesus had immediately helped a centurion's servant, that is, a Roman soldier's servant. In Luke chapter 7, he had dropped everything to immediately go and raise a boy near the town of Nain. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus had intervened for the daughter of Jairus. We know he healed a lame man. We know he restored the sight to a blind man he didn't even know. A whole lot of healing had gone on for a whole lot of people. It was not a big leap to expect Jesus to do the same thing for a close friend. We know that if Jesus and the disciples had left right away, it was still going to take a day for them to get to Bethany in order to help Lazarus. But instead of doing that, in John chapter 11 we're told that Jesus decides to hang around where he is for another two days. At in the time it takes him to get that initial message, and by the time he actually gets to Bethany, we're told that Lazarus has been dead already for four days. This whole incident sets up a series of confused interactions with people. Apparently, according to John 11, most of the people involved had, at best, mixed emotions about Jesus' response to the request from Mary and Martha. The first conversation that occurs is almost comic. In verse 11, Jesus tells the disciples that our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. The disciples decide to interpret that literally, and they tell Jesus, hey, that's good news. If he's asleep, Lazarus is going to get better. It's kind of funny. It's probably funny to me because, as an aside, it reminds me of my misspent youth watching a famous, really awesome Monty Python skit where a customer is trying to return a dead parrot that was resting on his shoulder. The proprietor keeps on saying with this heavy British accent, he's not dead, he's just asleep. Anyway, it's pretty funny. I don't necessarily recommend Monty Python, but it was pretty funny. Jesus in this account is probably thinking, hey, I just wanted to be a bit polite, a little kinder in it, sort of like saying Lazarus had passed away or he had gone to the other side, but it wasn't working. So he finally tells his disciples straight up, let me be a little more clear. Lazarus has died. The second interaction is similar. In verse 21, Martha, Jesus' friend, goes out to meet Jesus when he arrives 
and her opening words to Jesus are, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. She had a lot of confidence, a lot of faith, that Jesus could have healed Lazarus. My guess is that that confidence, that same confidence, created some conflicted feelings because she knows if Jesus had bothered to come right away, he could have done something about it. Although it does seem, and the account tells us, that she still believed Jesus could do something that would redeem the situation. Jesus tells her when she accuses him of not coming that Lazarus is going to rise again. And Martha, who's been given or has been to a few funerals and gives the right church answer, she says, I know he will, at the resurrection at the end of time. Sort of missing Jesus' point. Martha then goes and gets Mary, her sister, who goes quickly out to Jesus, and she collapses in front of him crying. And through her grief, she says to Jesus, look, look, if you had just been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And we're told that Jesus' heart was broken along with Mary and the others, and he wept as well. The people around watch all of this. And some of them are saying, wow, look at Jesus cry. He really cares. But others, sort of reasonably, are saying, really? Really? If so, then why didn't he show up and do something? Why didn't Jesus show up and do something? Why didn't he show up? That is the question, isn't it? It's hard for us to understand the strange ways of God. In this story, the intentionally strange ways of Jesus, even with his friends, even with people he cares about, even with people who know deeply that Jesus loves them. That's been our question as churches, as individuals, for the past couple of years. So as church leaders or people who attend a church, like Mary and Martha, we're hanging on to our faith and our belief in the power and even the love of Jesus. But it seems like we have to do it while continually wondering why. Why is this happening? There's been a lot of things going on that adversely affected the Church of Jesus Christ over this period of time, as most of you, I think, are aware. During this season, I've had opportunity to talk to most of our churches, whether through the staff board members or just concerned individuals, or staff, whatever it may be. If not in person, then through Zoom or on the phone. And I've been blessed as well with a treasure trove of emails, a large treasure trove of emails. One thing is clear. From some perspectives, the church in North America has not been thriving through this past two years. And I know, so let me just mention this, almost all of your churches did a great job of pivoting adjusting, streaming, recording, videoing, starting up, closing down, and then starting it all over again throughout COVID. You never knew from one week to the next what was going to go on. And thank you for that. Thank you for your commitment. I'm not meaning to minimize that through this message. I also recognize that our churches responded in amazing ways to people around us through the real issues of climate change, of wildfires, and of floods. Together, we were able to support churches close to these disasters in Hope, in Princeton, in Kamloops, in Abbotsford, and our churches there and other places did spectacular work directly helping many people. We should all be proud to say that we stand alongside them. 
And the fact is, as a family of churches throughout Fellowship Pacific, we raised almost $250,000 to help victims throughout our region. And I think they appreciated it. However, we're not telling the full truth if we ignore the fact that many, if not most of our churches and our church leaders have felt the stress of decisions through this time. It's felt like they were losing no matter what choices they made. To open or not to open. To open in small numbers in multiple services or to stay online. To mask or not to mask. Whether to enforce vaccination rules or not to whether to meet or not meet in small groups, with group sizes changing all the time and the number we are allowed changing with every public health update, to stream live or record or place their services online or on demand. I think you, like me, know all the choices, all the very strongly held opinions. What you may not know is the toll that those choices and those opinions took on leaders in your church leaders who sought to carefully honor God and to make good choices, who prayed about it, thought about it in groups together. You may not know the extreme nature of some of the comments, the emails, the voicemails sent in the direction of your leaders. I've had some of those forward, forwarded to me and it's really less than great. I've tried to look back objectively and I don't really believe that there has been a greater opportunity in my lifetime for the Church of Jesus Christ to set ourselves apart from society and Canadian culture as a whole. Jesus prayed to the Father in the High Priestly Prayer of John 17 that believers would be brought to complete unity so that the world would know that they were loved by God the Father. The proof of that, according to Jesus, was our love for one another. And we've had a two-year window to demonstrate how Jesus transforms people so that we as followers of Christ are different than the world around us and really different when the pressure is on. We know how to love when that happens. Unfortunately, for some that wasn't true. Now, for quite a few it was, but in the big picture of the church in Canada, this has not been our finest hour. But as you know, that's not all that's happened in the past few years. We've also seen massive splintering of the North American Evangelical Church along political lines, where allegiances have been based on political ideology rather than the gospel of Jesus and the mission he's called us to. Beyond that, we've endured blow after blow as we've seen tragic stories in the news of celebrity pastors falling through abuse of power and sexual exploitation. Now, there's a lot more of that kind of thing that we could talk about. But there's enough here to discourage us already. And none of us need that. We've been there, we've done that, we've seen the movie, or more particularly, we've seen the news every day. You didn't really need to come to church to have me remind you about it. However, even though we sometimes feel discouraged, we do need to pause long enough to ask why. To ask, what is God doing? And are we listening to what he's saying? Because there is some really good news in the middle of all of this difficult times. God still has a plan and he will use this season of our lives of faith to accomplish his purpose. That's God's promise. It's his promise in Romans 11 that he can use hard things for good 
the God we believe in, the God we have devoted our lives to, the creative, all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe, is not powerless, he is not paralyzed in the face of a pandemic or anything else. Nor is his son, our Savior, whose resurrection we just celebrated at Easter, Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the passage in Habakkuk 3 in the Old Testament where the prophet has been forced after going through some difficult times to recognize that God is still God and he is not beholden to us, nor does he answer to us. Habakkuk ultimately turns back to God and he prays in chapter 3, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So if God remains in control and mercy is what we still need, then what is he saying to our churches? What is God saying to us? Because in the past few years, God has certainly been demanding our attention. Return to me with John 11, because I think it gives us some guidance on why some of these strange kinds of things happen. First, we'd see just at the beginning of the story that sometimes hard things happen to create a greater opportunity for God to be glorified. In John 11:5, when he first hears that Lazarus is sick, Jesus immediately states and says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Tied to this is a second reason, which appears in verse 14 of John 11, where Jesus reminds his disciples that he's in a faith-building process with them. In fact, right after Jesus tells the disciples that Lazarus is dead, because he delayed going right away, that's why he died, he goes on to say, For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe. It was part of disciple-making. It was part of preparation for teaching them about the resurrection. Waiting, not intervening in the death, death of Lazarus, was all about the glory of God and the faith of his followers. We see the same thing recurring in the Old Testament, where God continually seems to set up his people in order to remind them where their faith has to lie, and that the direction and the purpose of their lives has to be, must be, the glory of God. Embedded as well in every one of these stories is a reminder that God can and does have the capacity to redeem every situation and every person. So in this gospel account, after all of his interactions with the various players in this story, Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus and he asks that the stone be rolled away. And when he does, they say to him, hey, that's a bad idea. It will smell bad. He's been there too long. And Jesus looks at them all, and he says this in verse 30, 40. He says, didn't I tell you this? Didn't you hear me? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. Then he prays. And he tells us that all of this was happening so that the people would believe that he was sent by God. Then he turns, and he calls Lazarus by name. And Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb, the grave rags that they had wrapped him in, just blowing in the breeze. Amazing sight. And I try to imagine this. I try to imagine what this would feel like. So your brother or your friend has died. You knew it. Everybody knew it. They had endured the grief of his funeral. They had wrapped his body in the grave rags. They had placed it in the grave. They had the finality of rolling the stone in front of the grave, walking away, 
filled with that heavy grief of loss, the aching fatigue of the heart sick, the oppression of uncontained sadness, where it just weighs you down and never seems to let you go. And then I try to imagine the feeling when Lazarus walks out of the grave. Would they believe? Did they disbelieve? Did they think it was a trick? Did they think it was somebody else? Or was the joy just so intense they couldn't dream of it? They couldn't stop crying. Their eyes just welled up with tears. I think of how happy I was, tangibly moved to joy, when Canada men's soccer team made the World Cup. Seemingly a minor thing. And watch these players with uncontrolled happiness. I can think about when my children were born. I can think about all kinds of times where it was impossible to restrict the elation in my heart because of that great depth of ecstasy of something that was just so great. It's just my opinion, but I feel like the ecstasy of seeing Lazarus walk out of the tomb was far, far greater than the appreciation for Jesus if he had just healed him. And I wonder about the wonder it would have caused in every single person there the glory that went to Jesus. So please hear me. Too often we ask why God has not shown up, and he already has. We just didn't hear him when he was talking. We just toes, chose to misunderstand what he was saying. We were just looking in the wrong direction. So remember in John 11, this was the fifth of seven signs pointing us to Jesus in the book of John. And they were leading Jesus into the Passion Week, and it would culminate in the crucifixion and the resurrection at the end of that next week. All of this, all of this miracle story, the I Am saying, this entire story with Lazarus was an intentionally living demonstration of the power of Jesus to transform, to bring life, to overcome death. It was proof that he could do what he had promised to do. And no obstacle, no barrier, no threat would stop Jesus from fulfilling the mission of the Father. Jesus was not crucified a week later because he was weak, but because he was powerful enough to overcome death by paying the ransom price from our sin and rising from the grave. This was the plan of the Father. This is the central foundation of our faith and the church. When I look through the past few years of the church, I can't help but believe that God is speaking to me, that God is speaking to us. And it's up to us to listen and to hear. I deeply believe that God is reminding us of the dangers of losing our way, of years of looking in the wrong directions. We have let power, politics, and personality trump sacrifice and servanthood, and it has hurt the church and it has hurt each one of us in our walk with Jesus. Instead of following what Jesus called us to, we have too often bought into the lies of our culture, spiritualizing the pursuit of power as valid because it lets us reach a bigger crowd with the gospel, spiritualizing the attraction of politics as a way to Christianize our country, and spiritualizing the cult of personality as replacing submission and service for the character of a Christian leader. And all of those are lies, lies of Satan, lies of our culture, and contrary to scripture and the model that Jesus taught us of servanthood. I believe that in our time, in the past few years, God has done what he will always do, which is call us back to himself 
and to the pursuit of his glory, to the glory of his Son and the glory of the Spirit rather than our own. And in the process of calling us, sometimes in difficult ways, he will renew our faith in him rather than in ourselves. But let me end with this reminder. This story in John 11 is not really just a story of the church, but it's a story of each one of us. It's a story of the choices that we make that influence ourselves, our families, the church, and ultimately influence culture. In the story of Lazarus, there is this great moment, a great personal moment, an important moment for each of us, which right after Martha, occurs right after Martha had said she believed Lazarus would rise again in the resurrection, you know, in the last day, given that right church answer, answer that I mentioned earlier. And Jesus cuts off that direction of conversation with these amazing words in verse 25, another of the I am statements of the book of John, and he points to himself and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Then he turns and he looks directly at her and he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Try to imagine today that Jesus is asking you that question. Jesus says, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. Nothing else, not personal power, not political power, not the power of personality. There is only one way, I am. Do you believe this? And Martha makes an incredible, powerful statement of faith, and she says, Yes, Lord, I believe. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. It needs to be our claim. And today, I want to invite every one of you individually and every one of our churches, along with me, to renew your promises and your focus, to say again to ourselves and to one another, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God who has come into the world, who came into the world for me, for us, for our churches. Friends, let's not waste the costly lessons of the last few years. If, like me, you believe that God has been speaking, then we had better pause and listen. When God takes us on difficult journeys, it is almost always for His glory and for our faith. There's only one way there's only one road, and it takes each of us to the cross, and to the resurrection, ultimately to humility and a belief in Jesus. And in our churches and in our lives, if we want a different outcome than we have seen in the church in the past few years, then we need to renew that focus. The cross is the center of what we believe. Jesus is the resurrection. When we come back to that, when we call other people to that, God will renew his church, and he will do it as each of us begin that renewal in ourselves. I invite you again to join me in that journey. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day, and God bless.